This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Robin Hansen, who is an associate professor of economics at George Mason University and a fellow, a research associate, excuse me, at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He's also the author of a book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Robin, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. Let's talk about something. Cool. So you have a very interesting background in like physics and you did stuff with AI, prediction markets. Um, how did you end up as an economist? What got you started in physics and what happened along the way? Uh, well, I spent uh, an unusually long time uh, changing fields until I settled on something I didn't want to change from. <laughs> so I kept asking myself, is this the most interesting thing? Is this the most important thing I could be working on? And there were times when it seemed really interesting and important. And then after a little while, I had learned much of the main things you could learn about that. And something else seemed more interesting or important. And so I kept doing that until I got to economics, where you could do a lot of things and call it economics. And along the way, I had decided prediction markets were uh, a very important thing. And that's part of the reason I went into economics. Uh, although what I learned was that I was initially planning on just doing lab experiments as a way to test prediction markets. And I learned that in economics, the rule was, at least in the world I was in, you test theories, not mechanisms. Uh, that is, you're supposed to have a game theory model of a mechanism, and you're testing the game theory model. You don't just try things and see if they work. You have a model of the thing that might work, and you test the model of it. So that distracted me from doing more prediction market work, because it's actually kind of hard to make game theory models of prediction markets. Although it's easy to just test them, see if they work. So what drew you specifically to prediction markets? I mean, what, what is it about? I mean, first of all, actually, let's, let's start with the basics. What is a prediction market? Walk us through that. So uh, speculative markets should be familiar to you. Those are stock markets, commodity markets, option markets, all those sort of things. And in speculative markets, there's a thing you can buy or sell, and um, you can buy it today and sell it tomorrow. And if the price goes up, you make money. If it goes down, you lose money. And you can use speculative markets to speculate. And speculative markets do a great job of aggregating information. Um, sometimes we make betting markets. That is, we have a particular thesis, and we design a speculative market around a claim. And there's an asset that pays off, depending on what happens to the claim. And a prediction market is, in essence, a betting market done for the reason of aggregating information. That is, it's mechanically the same as a betting market, uh, but it done for different reasons. Okay, so that was actually my next question, the distinction between betting and prediction markets. So, nice. But so what originally drew you to prediction markets, that is betting markets for the purposes of making predictions? What's the what's so the side or the I was a student in philosophy of science and physics at Chicago from 1981 to 84, and I did a lot of reading there. 
And one of the ideas that attracted me in that reading was the idea of uh, hypertext, hypertext publishing in particular. This was an early vision of what would later become the World Wide Web. But this was before there was a World Wide Web. And this vision of the World Wide Web was exciting in part because it promised to help us fix some problems we have with how we do conversation. And in particular, one of the elements of their vision was that it would allow people to see rebuttals more easily. That as I could, somebody would write something and I could rebut it and people could find my rebutting more easily from the original thing. And that was a key idea of hypertext publishing that was attractive. And so I left uh, grad school in 84 and went off to Silicon Valley to both do AI research and to get involved in hypertext publishing. And as I got involved with hypertext publishing over the next few years, I came to question that basic vision of whether how, how good it would be if we could easily find rebuttals for things. And that group that I was hanging around with was kind of libertarian, pretty libertarian folks. And so they had been talking about markets for a while, and I had been assimilating that sort of world view. And then when I was looking for an alternative to fixing conversation uh, and no longer thinking hypertext would do it, then betting markets were an alternative. That is, the, the problem is we just seem to believe stupid stuff on a lot of important topics, in part because good arguments don't get heard or bad arguments don't get rebutted or people you know, say what people want to hear, et cetera. And then the idea of a betting market seemed like it would just cut through that. That is, if we get people to bet on a question, then the consensus would be robust and reliable in ways that other conversation forums were not. And that's the thing that attracted me to trying to get people to bet on important questions. And it's a simple idea. And then when I went literature searching over the next few years to find other people, I found many other people who had similar ideas. It's a relatively simple idea. Other people had found it before. They had written a bit about it, discussed it more. But I guess I just went all in to talk about how far you could go with this. So that's what distinguished me from the other people who talked about that idea. Then they were thinking of it as relatively small, minor, cute little things you could do sometimes. And I was thinking you could just do everything with this. And so I started to write about the vision of how far you could go if you had betting markets on lots of things. I like that. Um, you Thinking big rather than small. So you can think of bets as like bull, uh, tax on BS. Right. right. And it's funny because it, I didn't realize until after graduate school that a lot of what people say and believe, and part of it was reading your book, um, Elephant in the Brain, it's, did some work there, but that a lot of what people say and believe is more about belonging, signaling to others, Right. Um, not standing out, not being a target for vitriol, uh, having very little to do with what they believe the truth to be about the world. Um, well, right. very little to do with how they would act in response to incentives. So there's this word belief that can be cashed out in different ways, right? You can cash it out in terms of how you would act and in terms of concrete payoffs. You can cash it out into what you would say. And those are just two different things that don't have to agree. Actually, So in some sense, you might really believe it. You just would believe it with respect to the words you would say next. 
right. that you wouldn't believe it with respect to the actions you would take. Yeah, the distinction is an interesting one. It's actually it's actually something that philosophers of mine argue over a lot. You know, whether belief is just something that you affirm or it's something that you act on. Right? And I tend to be more on the act on crowd. But yeah, there's an amb ambiguity there. But what are those bigger things? Well, there could, there could just be two different things and no ambiguity. Right. That, that doesn't yeah. have to be. I mean, they can just be separate concepts and you could talk about one or the other. There could be a word that was ambiguous between those concepts, but that doesn't mean those concepts are ambiguous. Right. Uh, we said bigger things. Um, what sorts of bigger things? What 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 would prediction markets help us with? I mean, just a just a sampler plate, right? So you know, there are, you know at the time I was in academia, and there are many disputes in academia about you know, physics parameters and theories of social science and all sorts of things. You could just have a betting market about each one. And then we could come to agree on which theories we think are how true. Um, then the, we we have many other contexts in which we have disputes. Obviously, we have disputes in public policy about the effect of crime laws or the effect of, you know, antitrust prosecution, et cetera. There's just a whole bunch of context where there's a matter of the fact of the effect of various policies on the world. And you could just use prediction markets to get those answers. And then there's an even much larger world of organizations making decisions and they have to make a judgment about whether they're going to make a deadline or whether they should reassign someone to a project or whether they should apply for a grant or whether they should introduce a project or hire someone into a role. And all of those things are, things people argue about and they sit around in meetings and they come to tentative agreements. And then you could just answer those questions with prediction markets. Right. But I mean, I suppose this, this prediction market, uh, the way you've described it, seems to presuppose a model of people as being sensitive to incentives of the right sort. So you could have like a prediction market where you have a bunch of knuckleheads who just make right. predictions and lose a bunch of money and they're just really bad at this. Right. So so there's more than just incentives in this package. So a key idea is a prediction market is a place that you would go and there's a current price and that's the current consensus and other people will treat that as a consensus. And then if you think it's wrong, you are encouraged to move the price. And by doing so, you are expected to profit by moving it in the direction of what you think is right. Uh, but you aren't required to do this for all questions or even any questions. You're invited to look for where you think you would have the most effect. And then you're invited to repeatedly push back when other people push against you. So there's a huge selection effect going here. The question is, where will you have a persistent effect and where will you be willing to go back? And so prediction markets aren't just like doing polls and giving some people some weak incentives on the polls there. It's inviting them to say, where do you want to play this game and play it a lot and then have a lot writing on whether you win or lose. So the people who will persist in these markets are the ones who are willing to actually play and who don't lose in the sense that initially they, they do well and then they have increasing assets and then they, decide to persist. So market prices aren't set by random average traders. They're set by the small subset of traders who are the most willing to trade on each shopping. So this sounds like a sort of almost uh, like knowledge or epistemic specialization. 
like oh, yes very much something about like one particular area and i go on the betting market i can maybe clean up in that area if i know enough and if the bets are, are right but i may not venture out to like economics or physics because maybe i don't know anything about those. Right. You're, you're well advised to find the places that you know the best compared to other people and then this hypothesis if you're being the best will be tested by how well you do you won't be betting against random people on this topic you'll be betting against the other people who also think this is one of their best topics how do you deal with if you're going to bet on big topics and you want people to you're inviting people to gravitate towards sort of their areas of expertise the way the places where they can most likely make money how do you overcome things like social desirability bias so what i mean by that is like you might think just even participating right depending on your cultural norms or religious beliefs or, or what have you that even to to enter into a prediction market might be uncouth not kosher i, I don't know how to put it but but um not done so you just you don't enter right so i think we should ask how does a market get created and by who so um, there isn't just markets markets falling from the sky. Um, markets exist because somebody creates them for a purpose. So most speculative markets that are out there, like betting markets, stock markets, et cetera, they exist because the traders want to trade. So people want to buy and sell stock. People want to buy and sell options, et cetera. And these markets are a response to the, the demands by those traders. And so there, there is, of course, far more markets that don't exist than do, and they don't exist because there aren't enough people who want to make those trades. Um, those are markets that exist because people want to trade and basically hedge and speculate. But I'm interested in the markets where the people who create the market are making it because they want to know the answer to a question. So say in an organization, there might be a project with a deadline and people running the project want to know, will we make the deadline? So now they might initiate creating the prediction market and they might invite participants in the project and people nearby to trade on that market. And they might announce to everybody that, hey, this is important. We would like your input. And then they might additionally give financial and social incentives to participate. That's the kind of scenario I'm most interested in is where somebody who wants to know the answer is willing to pay for it, not just in the point of view of hiring a consultant to set it up, but also in the point of giving people incentives and approving and encouraging them to participate. That would be how you would get people to overcome their reluctance, as you would say, hey, this is us and we are doing this and won't you help? Oh, fair enough. Um... So you can imagine prediction markets about things like, um, you know, stuff that you know something about, you know, maybe it's a physics question or an economics question or a public policy question. It seems, I mean, I sort of wonder, this is more of a question than a criticism. Do prediction markets fare better when the subject matter is well known by at least somebody? And maybe that's not a clear point. So, so take AI, right? And, you know, GPT-4, and how this is going to shake out in terms of employment and various other things. Um, you might wonder whether or not prediction markets would do as well there, given we're talking about something that's not just in the future, but is rather novel. Like we don't exactly, we, we being humans don't exactly have a lot of, I mean, we have some historical examples, sure. Right. But you might think there's like a difference of kind or something. 
And even if Jat GPT four is not the best example, you can imagine examples where it's like a difference of kind. Do you think prediction markets would fare worse in those sorts of conditions? So when we discuss and talk, our discussion and talk varies in its level of abstraction. Uh, prediction markets are going to force you to be more concrete because you're not going to be able to phrase a question that you can settle the bets on unless it's relatively concrete language. So you'll typically have to search near the abstraction you're interested in for more concrete variations that not only can you express and find clear meaning in, but then also that will resolve in a reasonable time. So if you're talking about large language models, we might ask about how many people download them and use them, or we might ask about customer revenue for various products they'll sell. We could ask about passing Turing tests. We'd have to find more specific concrete questions near the abstract question. So you might think of that as perhaps a defect of prediction markets that they it's harder to bet abstractly. Now, there is in principle a way you could bet abstractly, which is to just set down an abstract question and then wait until the world eventually achieves consensus on it. That is, there are some abstract claims that we by now have achieved pretty strong consensus on, and therefore we could have settled bets based on that abstract consensus, but that takes longer and sometimes doesn't happen. I think I get the gist of prediction markets, but then there's the question of, are they fairly effective? Are they better than say putting a prediction market versus like elites or experts in a field? Um, how, do, how does that work? How do you evaluate how effective prediction markets are? Like what are the competitors, elites, committees? So I would distinguish two levels uh, in the analysis. Uh, one level is what method should you or someone else use to try to decide what they think is true? Uh, and then we could ask about statistics or intuition or qualitative reasoning or doing experiments and et cetera. And then we might also ask about, you know, eliteness or um, polymathness or other sorts of features of the people who might do those things. That's at a level of sort of making predictions and guessing which ones are better. But I would say prediction markets are a competitor at a different level. Uh, their level is there are all these different people who could or might make predictions. And how do you aggregate all of their differing opinions into a single unified estimate that is something we could all rely on that also gives people good incentives to produce their estimates? That's the level at which prediction markets sit. So it's not a it's not competing with experts not competing with amateurs. It's not competing with statistics. It's it's a, it's answering the question, well, if you weren't sure about elites versus statistics versus other things, how would we decide? So this is how we would decide. This is the way we would come together to agree on our joint estimate, given the possibility of many different approaches and people who differ in their opinions about each other's effectiveness. So it's almost like a meta method, right? Well, it's a, it's a forum <laughs> in which methods compete. Methods should compete in forums. There sh methods shouldn't just be declared best and assumed. Methods oh, should have to compete. Oh, no. Best and assume. That's horrible. Don't do that. Uh, what about, so prediction markets, you said big things, and I keep coming back to that, but I think it's an interesting point. Big. Things. I can give you lots of big examples if you want to go through big I'll, examples. 
well, I'm actually very interested in things like national security or economic policy or immigrants at the border. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking policy level stuff. Sure. So yeah. what's what's the biggest policy you can imagine? Um, I can give you pretty big ones, but well, what comes to your mind? <laughs> Um, gee, I don't know. Um, let's say like invading Iraq. I'll be smart with a small. I meant something like, you know. Uh, yeah, what's big? <laughs> yeah, but or, invading, Iraq, invading Iraq would definitely be on the table. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you might say at the time we're considering invading Iraq, right? And we then might ask, well, what are the outcomes um, that we'd be interested? What what sort of things we were hoping to achieve by that sort of war? Um, and we might ask about, you know, geopolitical stability in the region or the number of other nations that try to defy us later on. We could ask about international respect and uh, prestige. You, you would be trying to construct measures that would be proxies for the things you wanted as the outcome of this. And of course, you would also have like war deaths or how long it's going to go or how much we're going to pay. Well, those would all be the kinds of outcomes you're interested in. And you'd want to compare those outcomes if we invade versus if we don't, or maybe a small invasion versus a big one, or you know, waiting and seeing versus doing it now. For each of those things, you'd be asking, if we did it this way, what on average outcome should we expect? And prediction markets can do exactly that. They can give you these conditional outcomes given actions. So I can give you a, a simpler version though. So think of a company a small firm, a medium-sized firm, say, with a CEO. And the question before us is, should we keep the CEO? That's a pretty big question for any one firm. That's one of the biggest questions. Should we get a new one or keep the current one? And um, I'm going to show you how exactly to do that. And then hopefully you would see by analogy how to do some of these other things. So we're imagining a public firm where it has a stock price. And what we're going to do is uh, in an ordinary stock market, you trade stock for cash, and then the price is a estimate of the value of the company averaging over all the different scenarios you can imagine. So that's your job when you're trying to pick the price. You're trying to say all the different things could happen in this country, company under which each scenario, how much would the company be worth, i.e. how much revenue and, and profit would it get, and then take an average over all those scenarios. So what I'm going to have you do instead now is in addition to the ordinary stock market, we're going to have two called off markets two conditional markets. These are also going to be markets where you trade stock for cash. But in these markets, if a certain condition doesn't happen, the trade is canceled as if the trade never happened. So one of the markets will be called off if the CEO does not stay in power till the end of the quarter. And another market will stay will be called off if the CEO does stay in power to the end of the quarter. And now for each of these markets, when you're trying to guess how, what the prices you should trade in that market, you'll average over scenarios, but only scenarios consistent with these conditions. So in one market, you'll be saying, if the CEO stays in charge, let me think of all those scenarios, how much is the company worth in all of those? Now, if the CEO is not in charge by the end of the quarter, let me imagine all those scenarios, how much is the company worth in all those? And you'll get two different prices. And now we look at the difference between these prices. If the company looks like it's worth more, if we keep the CEO, then market is advising, keep the CEO. If the company looks like it's worth more, if you dump the CEO, then the market's advising, dump the CEO. And it's that simple. And that's the general process. So what we need is like some a discrete set of choices and then an outcome. 
And what we can always set up markets where we'll estimate the outcome conditional on which of the choices we make. And that would be a way for markets to advise decisions. So you said you average over all the scenarios. What what counts as the scope of the scenario? Like like what scenarios? Do Something I that could happen <laughs> with the yeah. probability. You weigh them with your probability for that scenario. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just curious because it's, I mean you could you could include like you know the resurrection of Christ or not. Well, right? you you could probably give that a very low probability, but uh, right, if you right. give it a high one, then it'll make a bigger difference. Right. No, but I mean, like, what do you, you know, like, I guess metaphysically it would be like, oh, do you include like just ordinary stuff, obviously, but then like, what is the scope of, um, well, obviously yeah. as a practical matter, people are only able to generate a limited number of scenarios <laughs> yeah. before they quit and right. decide they have got an estimate they'll go with. Um, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. So why not use prediction markets more in public policy discussions? I mean, voters are terrible at this and so are politicians. So why not introduce markets so there's several levels at which to answer the question so one question is would prediction markets actually give you more an accurate answers to several various key questions and i if you want to go into that I'd, I'd argue yes that is we have good reason to think so secondly you might ask well if there's a new thing in the world who's going to do it first and who's going to wait until the first people do it before they're willing to try and in our world, mostly government isn't the leader in innovation. So, uh, you know, governments weren't the first to try to, say, use computers to do various things. Their agencies, uh, private actors were usually the first. Well, and so Robert, we might Robert, say... Me, I was not talking about government. I meant <laughs> like think tanks or, or, you know, private institutions. I mean, you're right. The government is ridiculously slow. Part of the problem, actually. Um, I guess... Right, I so then we might say... Was, was more Which, of um, political economy reasons. So I assumed in the question that prediction markets do a better job of or, or bring a lot to the table. Right. Of, um, but I assumed it was something like pisses off the voters, maybe. You know, something like that. So again, the key idea here would be that the customer who wants the information pays for it. And that this is a way to buy information. So if you want to buy an accurate estimate, this is a way to do that. But we don't necessarily expect all useful kinds of information to have a customer willing to pay for it. Some kinds of information may be spread out so that many people benefit, but no one person is especially eager to pay for it. So uh, we, we may eventually get public opinion supporting this in that you know the public might say, hey, we should be doing this, we'll all benefit, let's just do it. But that would be after it had been demonstrated and proven by somebody else. Public is not again, the most innovative agent in society. So the first question might be to ask is, who could benefit the most from this as an initial new novel thing? Who would want to do the first tests? And then what might the obstacles there be? So I would say, you know, the, the best first applications would be organizations, relatively small organizations that have concrete questions that they want to answer for themselves, such as, will we make a deadline? Or what would sales be if we set the price here? Or what would, you know, which of these candidates should we hire in order to achieve high later employee evaluations? Those would be questions that many organizations would, you know, find value in. And that if some entrepreneur were to, you know, initiate a project to 
show that you could consistently do those sorts of things, then they might then achieve sales later from other firms willing to follow an early lead of demonstrations that that worked. Then later on, maybe the government and public policy would also want to use similar mechanisms, just like with computers, say, the first computers weren't used by the public clamoring for government to use computers or public policy to use computers. The first computers were used by private actors who had particular potential applications. Well, I, I guess in the back of my mind, without really saying it, I'll make it explicit. Um, it struck me that like the Pentagon would really be interested in accurate predictions. And I mean, very concrete scenarios, obviously, but there would be a lot of value, I would think, in being able to predict, you know, matters in the Middle East or what China's going to do with Taiwan. Um, so something what we're like talking that. about, though, is organizations of people. Right. And to what degree do they have actors who represent their interests and the ability to act to promote their interests? That's actually a hard thing in our world. <laughs> that is, individuals are much more able to see their interest and act on their behalf. And organizations are often spread out and diffuse and in conflict such that they find it hard to act on their behalf. So something like the entire military is a pretty large organization that honestly, like doesn't face very strong competitive or selective pressures. It's pretty much got the job regardless of what it does. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to do its job well. So whether or not they follow any one new innovative process could depend more on local politics and fashion than on, you know, what would actually be good for the military defense of the country. So that's why you might look for smaller organizations that were more competitive and had stronger pressures as the ones who might be most willing to do something that would directly promote their interest. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I guess I was thinking more something like, um, you know, a small secret organization within the Pentagon or something, you know, well, again, like DARPA, something like that. So um, we're talking innovation here, <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the topic is innovation, right? You have a new thing that isn't the current practice. And as you may know, the world does not consistently innovate. That is, not everybody who knows of a new possible thing they could do does that new thing. Basically, most of the world waits until somebody else does a new thing. And then they hope to copy it if it seems to be successful. So uh, fortunately, sometimes some people do try new things, but they're exceptions and they do them for a random range of exceptional reasons. Uh, and so then we might look here at who are the sort of people who might get into their head that they might want to try this. And then what goes wrong in those trials? So, you know, related to the fact that organizations aren't um, eager to adopt innovations, even that might benefit them, is the fact that often innovations that do benefit them come at someone's cost in the organization. That is, there are individuals in the organization, many of which, even most of which, do not, their interests do not equal the organization's interests. And so the organization could benefit even if they lose and they may oppose innovations. Yeah, um, no, that's, that's a fair point. Um, I guess I was originally thinking of this, you know, when I contacted you to, to do an interview, and then it turns out, I think you beat me to the punch by quite a bit. I was thinking, 
you know, wouldn't it be interesting to combine prediction markets with the interests of voters? So we figure out what voters want in democracy, right? We may have to do various, right. you know, analysis to figure out what that actually is. You know, if they're properly informed and yada yada, and then use prediction right. markets as a way to figure out how to accomplish those policy right. goals. Or, yeah. So that, that's, I think you beat me to it, though, right? Right. That's a variation on the thing I just told you about firing the CEO. So that's what I call a decision market. Um, and the key thing is you have some outcome you care about. That's a weighted average of whatever you care about, say, for a single number. And then you have some discrete options of what you could choose. And then you have markets predict the outcome conditional on the choice. And so for the firm choice, it's, it's just kind of obvious that everybody agrees that the stock price is a good proxy for what the firm should be doing. The firm should do whatever raises stock price. And there are other well, kinds of organizations that might be able to agree on other metrics for what they should be doing. But well, don't forget the, the stakeholder theory, which is. Well, well, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about the stakeholder theory. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. So in that case, if you bought that, then you try to make some more complicated weighted average of metrics appropriate for each of these kinds of stakeholders. But for like a democracy, you might say, well, how would we decide in a democracy what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? And so my proposal in that case is to simply have a representative democracy, have legislators who pass bills that create and manage and modify a measure of what we want. That is, you just directly construct it. So, um, you know, you could start with GDP, say, because that's often something people think they want. That is rich countries or they want to be rich and we like to be like rich countries and visit them. And we don't so much like poor countries. We don't want to be like them. So we could start with GDP, but then you can start to add things to it. You could add leisure. You could add respect. You could add um, environmental quality. You know, you could add all sorts of things to GDP to make a fuller measure of what it is we want. And once you have a measure of what we want, then you can just use this decision market process to tell you what will get us what we want. And so the simple governance process would be, we need a mechanism by, by which, you know, probably an auction would work fine, by which proposals get on the agenda. Maybe say there's two proposals a day that's considered. And then for each time there's a proposal, then you have the proposal versus the status quo. You have a market for each one estimating this national welfare outcome. And then the rule is just if the market says that national welfare is higher, given the proposal, then the status quo, you adopt the proposal and that's it. And you just repeat every, twice a day, over and over again, auction for which proposal to consider and um, making the decision market decide what to do next. So that then the voters and the legislatures are primarily about deciding what is this welfare measure how much do trees count how much does lifespan count you know how much does everything count for what we want but that's all later down the line first you want to pioneer and prove these mechanisms on simpler problems and so the fire the ceo would be a nice simpler one and there's many other nice simpler ones we could discuss so maybe like having a prediction market let's say a few years ago deciding whether or not to give Robin Hanson tenure. I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm yes, wondering so like, how, how, how far you want to take so, it. 
I think new hires is one of the most promising applications because it's just a very repeated problem. And in most organizations, a year, you know, two years after you hire someone, you have a decent performance evaluation about that person. Now for academics, maybe you wait six years for the 10-year performance evaluation, right? And so you might say for each candidate, you might, one thing would be, what's the chance we'll give them tenure if we put them on a tenure track? Or you could do some scale of what's the you know expected number of publications weighted by quality. Uh, if we give them a job, uh, there's a number of different ways you can do it. But in most organizations, you have some local way to evaluate employees, put them on a scale. And so the obvious thing to do is among a candidate of new hires to say, if we hire this person, what will their evaluation be after a year or two or three, whatever you want to choose? And that would be a great input. Now, so now you see that would be valuable to the organization, but now you can pause and ask, yeah, but who wants to do this? That is, individuals involved in hiring have their own private agendas, and how would those be served by this process? So as you may know, in academia, the people on the hiring committee aren't just there to promote the general interest of the department or university. They're usually there to promote their interests and their associates' interest in terms of getting somebody like them compatible with their area, you know, someone who will work well with them and, and um, you know, get along. And that's what they're selecting for. And, you know, instituting this system would take away their rents, their ability to get their private benefit out of this process. Therefore, they might not like it. Well, it's not just that. I mean... Even if you, I sort of wonder in the back of my head, even if you prove this to voters, consumers, a specific group in an organization, it comes off as a little robotic. And I don't even mean that as a criticism. I just mean like in terms of the psychology of people, that you might, I can just imagine this. People be like, well, it's kind of icky. It's surgical. It's, it sort of takes the heart out of things. Not that any of these criticisms are reasons not to do it, but obstacles to convincing people. And maybe that's so, just lip service. Maybe they're signaling to it's, others. It's worth thinking about that. That is, this isn't just a complaint about this kind of process. So we see this complaint in many other contexts. That is, we have a, there are contexts where there's sort of an organic, informal social process that makes choices. And then you come up with an alternative that's more mechanical, structured, formal, you know, um, accountable, <laughs> measurable. And then people complain about it. And the question is, well, what are reasonable basis for complaints there? So, for example, like sometimes there's organizations who buy supplies, right? And they've got a buyer and the buyer calls up various suppliers and negotiates with them and has lunch and like, you know, studies the question, discusses it with people and they make a purchase choice. And then sometimes you could instead have an auction. You say who's willing to pay the lowest offer this at the lowest price, we'll take them. And if you can control for the other quality variables enough, then that's a superior way to make a choice rather than um, just using this informal network. But people often complain about that. So we do have studies, for example, for various kinds of municipalities of government. If they use more of a formal auction approach, they actually just get more stuff at cheaper prices than if they have somebody negotiate this. Um, a related thing is the um, initial public offerings. Um, say what Google did is they had an auction. 
they said, we're just going to hold an auction and uh, you can, you know, whoever's willing to pay the most will get the stock. And most companies are kind of pushed away from that. That is, there are these investment banks and they say, hey, we'll run your initial public offering at our approach price and then we'll give it away. We won't necessarily get you the best price for all the stock. And we're going to give, you know, the fact we're going to give away your stock at a cheaper price with favors to various people we know. But, you know, you're going to get to associate with us and uh, that'll be worth something because like people are impressed by us. So, in fact, most initial public offerings are not of the form of an auction where you just say, hey, whoever wants the stock, who's willing to pay most of the stock gets it. No, that's not how it goes. And the story there is you don't want this mechanical auction process. That's certainly, that's what the investment banks tell you. Uh, but the question is whether we should believe them. I mean, a similar thing was true about, uh, say, school admissions, right? Uh, you could just go with GPA and test scores and some simple metric and decide who to admit. But admissions department say, no, 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 that's not human. That's that's too crude. You need people like us to interview them and discuss our own intuition about which you know, after-school activities should really count how much. And, uh, you know, that's how most admissions go, right? And the question is, do we believe them? Do we believe they're just helping themselves to some rents from being the people in control of the process? Or do we think there's actually some added value there that's important? You know, it's funny, you run into similar similar sorts of objections. I don't even want to, I don't really know what else to call them. They're not really objections in an intellectual sense, but to the idea of paying people for blood plasma. There's a certain subset of right. philosophers and intellectuals yep. that just come unglued at the idea that you, and they come up with all sorts of uh, various intellectual sounding objections. I think it just boils down to ew or ick, basically, some sort of gut it, thing. I just happened in the last few hours to be reading about the subject. So you and I did not prepare before this yeah. discussion. <laughs> right. But I just realized last night that I, I should review more this topic of the reluctance of people to have money associated with things yeah, it's and have strange. prices associated with things. Yeah. It's really quite strange. Um, I was talking to a family member a couple of years ago about getting a gift for a cousin. And I mentioned something about just giving him cash because I didn't really know what to buy. Right. And this apparently was seen as cold, calculating, and unthoughtful. It's you know it's 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 a lacks of personal touch maybe it, just, it signals you don't know the person well enough to buy them something that they would like i don't know What's so there are a lot of it's a plausible you, signaling you, explanations for these oh yeah, yeah definitely yeah um but if you go back about 200 years ago or so in the united states i mean culturally things have changed a lot but cash was considered quite considerate buying something for somebody was and odd. it still is in asia at the moment <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's qu yeah. quite common for holiday gifts to be cash which I always liked more than, say, gift cards or, or other things. It seems more efficient, but that's just me. Um, so how far do we take combining the yuck factor people have with, with these things? I'm wondering, like, how far do you take prediction markets, right? Like, do you suppose you really want to know if this person you're dating would make a good wife or husband or spouse? Right. right? This marriage would work. Or... Which children you should invest money in in terms of like higher ed? Maybe you don't have enough to, to send them all to college. Right. Maybe little Billy is not going to college, right? Like now these things seem kind of icky because it seems to take the personal out of these. But yeah, go ahead. There, there's two aspects here. One is just there are many kinds of decisions we make indirectly, informally, not directly and explicitly. And making any explicit decision about them would seem awkward. 
any conscious calculation whatsoever would be violating some key norms. They're supposed to be done intuitively, implicitly, and we're supposed to organically, uh, and we're not supposed to try to calculate them. And then there's a second question of if we're going to explicitly calculate them, is it okay for money and competition to be involved? And um, so I just six months ago, I realized this seemed to be an important enough question and in my way enough that I decided to start researching it. So I frame the question as the sacred. That is, many people had said basically doing these things was a violation of some sort of sacred sets. And I realized, well, I've been hitting my head against the sacred thing for too long and I should just try to study it. And that's what I have done. So I, and I think I've successfully made a lot more sense about what it is and how it works and why it's there. So that, so this isn't something economists ever talk about. Uh, It's something that some kinds of sociologists and anthropologists talk about, but it's in my way. (laughs) It's in my way. Uh, (laughs) So now I think I have a better story about how that works. And then, you know, we can bring that back to these issues, but uh, I think that's a prod for some kinds of my research. So you talked about my book, Elephant in the Rain, and that's in part was prodded by all these things I wanted to do that the world was not very interested in. And I was trying to puzzle over, well, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, like, for example, you know, medicine isn't very effective, but people don't seem to care about other ways you could be more effective about medicine, what's going on with medicine. And that was a prod toward the elephant in the brain. And so suddenly here, these sort of obstacles are a prod to, let's try to figure this out. Right. Um, if you're interested in the 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 sacred, as you put it, um, you might be interested in a book by uh, Jason Brennan and Peter Jaworski, Markets Without Limits. I don't know if you've read I it, but just came it. across that in the last half few hours here because <laughs> I saw an article on that. But yeah. uh, yes, but you know, uh, is it does it give you a theory of the sacred, or is it just telling you that don't let the sacred get in the way of getting some value here? Well, it's basically, I think it's like half the book where they go through different, basically different intellectual permutations of what you might call the sacred, and then sort of an intellectual engagement with them. I I don't know that this is going to psychologically address um, if someone has issues with, you know, prediction markets and marriage or something, if that's really going to address that. I mean, sometimes you, I find sometimes with people, you can intellectually disarm them, but the the sort of sacred or yuck factor remains regardless. Uh, so and sometimes addressing things on the intellectual level doesn't really do the trick. Uh, but at but least it, you and I, when we're struggling to understand what's the problem here, we could at least have a better story of what's going on. So yeah, There may not be a one-to-one relationship between that and how to change proposals or market them, but still I think it helps. Can I try a stab at an answer? Sure. Well, I, I don't know if it's going to cover all cases of this, but we're calling the sacred. But it seems to me a lot of it is signaling to others that you're not a cold calculating machine. You have feelings, you can be sentimental. Um, sometimes when you side with your tribe, it's irrational overall, but your tribe wants to know you're going to side with them, right? So maybe that's not the best approach uh, in terms of accuracy. So maybe what I'm getting at is that the, the Maybe this the sacred just boils down to various kinds of signaling. So my observation is this is how most theorizing goes wrong. 
sorry to use you as a concrete example, but I think what happens no, is people please, see please. Yeah. see one sort of phenomena and they find one or two correlates and then they make a theory based on the one or two correlates to explain the one phenomena and then they think they're done. So let me contrast that with what I think is the right way to do this, which is you take a phenomena like the sacred and then you try to collect all the correlates you can about that thing, as many as possible, and then you put them all on the table and you say, let's generate theories that explain as many of these as possible and pick the one that explains as many as possible. That's different than just picking one correlate and coming up with a theory that explains that one thing. Right. So you're noticing that we have the sense of, hey, you want to be more intuitive about this, not so calculating. That's true, right? And then you're thinking, oh, I could build a theory on that one thing. And that could be my theory of how there's this whole category treated differently. Hey, there's this one thing that's different. And I might say, well, good for you for finding one thing, but let's find more. And like, like, like what? This, this is the fundamental, this is, I think, the fundamental mistake in a lot of social science is really just not being systematic. And there, this is the one great method that I recommend to everybody, all my descendants for generations on, which is whatever thing you want to study, like the sacred, first collect as many like qualitative patterns of data that are relevant as you can, as many puzzles and, you know, things that are going on. You might go, gee, why is that going on? Collect as many as you can all around the same topic and then collect theories but for each theory, ask how it explains all of them, yeah. not just one. Yeah, yeah. Not good enough for a theory to explain one or two of them. You want to yeah. say, no, can I find a theory that explains oh, all at once? That's the standard. And then when you collected, I don't know, half a dozen theories and you found that theory D explains all of them better than the others, then that would be the point at which to say, let's go with D because you can explain a bunch of them all at once. But, you know, in fact, people make the mistake, I think, of, noticing one pattern and quickly coming up with an ad hoc story for that one pattern and then stopping at that point. Oh, yeah. Well, part of the process I think of investigating is coming up with just so stories. I mean, you don't just come up with one just so story, you come up with a bunch of them and you see which one lacks, it has the least ad hoc features. Has right, the but the scope that is, right. Fine. that's exactly, but you need a wide scope of right. what you're applying these just so stories to. You never answered my question. Though. Yeah. It seems to me signaling is, I'm not saying it's right, but it's a, it's a natural starting point. Right. So what doesn't signaling capture with regard to the sacred? Well, I can. So what I did recently is I wrote this paper with 60, basically 62 correlates of the sacred. And so most of them aren't explained by this one signaling story. Can you give me an example? So for example, um, the sacred is supposed to be set apart and clearly distinguished from the non-sacred. Yep. The sacred is idealized. Okay. Uh, it is seen to be as um, has fewer defects. It, it lasts longer. Um, it has fewer subcategories. Um, sacred, different kinds of sacred things are seen to be less in conflict with each other. Sacred things are seen to be less misleading in terms of appearances. Um, okay. We have various emotions with respect to the sacred that are distinctive. Uh, we often feel like we're in an, a transcendent feeling regarding them. Um, we feel that they are there's something deep in them that's um, mysterious and big. Uh, these are just a few of the many correlates that people have observed with the sacred. 
But one of the main categories of correlates is the fact that we seem to be supposed to feel it, not think it, We're supposed to intuit it, not calculate it. Um, and that's one of the sets of correlates that you need to explain. And, and another, you know, one is that you're you're not supposed to mix it up with mundane things or trade it off against mundane things. And that's a taboo on monetary prices and um, making trade-offs between it and other less sacred things. In fact, you, you're just not supposed to ever give up some of the sacred for more of the mundane. Where do you see the future? Sort of wrap this up a little bit. Um, I didn't mean to get off on a, a tangent with sacred, but I, I see what you mean about the correlates. Um, and I guess par partially, I'll just say this really quick and then I'll ask a question. I think partially depends on how thick or thin your conception of the sacred is. Um, but but I think at least with regard to the trading off the sacred for the mundane, that seems to be a lot of what's going on with like the blood plasma markets or prediction markets or a lot of these. That, I think that's the intuition. You're, those things aren't commensurate. You can't trade them off against each other. To do so is to violate some sort of expectation or norm or something, I think. Yeah, I think so, that's the one. I mean, I would just more say that a great many of our current institutions in society, if you had asked people long ago, they might have also said, I don't like that because it violates my senses of what should be. So right. the world is just not <laughs> what we think ought to be. Right. Though often institutions arise, and even if people are somewhat uncomfortable with them, they find a local advantage, and then they spread, and then they become widespread institutions. So that's, of course, part of the widespread, say, discomfort with many elements of capitalism, is that if they ask themselves, should the world be like this? They go, no, this doesn't seem like how the world should be, but the world is that way, and they accept it. So I might be, instead of trying to ask, how can I get ordinary people to be comfortable with this? I might instead ask, how can I get anybody to try it? Right. And then if they try it and gain advantage, then it will spread and then other people will, you know, copy it in order to compete or find their own advantage. And then eventually it will be seen as ordinary and, you know, not of great note, even if you abstractly thought about it and said, well, geez, that doesn't seem like the, the thing that feels best to me. So a nice example, I think, is cost accounting. Cost accounting didn't used to exist thousands of years ago. Uh, and if you went to a firm that wasn't doing cost accounting and you said, I think you guys ought to do cost accounting. What you'd basically be saying is somebody might be stealing around here. We should find out who. It's not really a welcome message. <laughs> right. Okay. But now in a world where everybody does cost accounting, if you go and say, hey, I suggest we not do cost accounting in this project, in this team, what you'd be suggesting is could we just steal and not keep track of that? It would also not sound like a very good message. So you can have multiple equilibrium. In a world where nobody does it, it can look bad to introduce it. In a world where everybody does it, it can look bad to try to take it away. And I think that's how prediction markets would be. So once every project with a deadline had a prediction market on it that was saying whether you're going to make the deadline, then if you say, let's not do the prediction market on our project deadline, how about that? Everybody would interpret that correctly as, we're not going to make the deadline. Could we just not even look at that? Right. <laughs> And that wouldn't be very encouraging, right? But in a world now where everybody doesn't do a project deadline, and you said, I think we should have a prediction market on the deadline, what you're basically saying is, we're probably not going to make this deadline, and I'm, I think we should look at that. <laughs> That's also not a welcome message, you see. So again, I'm, I'd 
pay less attention to like what it would take a median person to get them to feel more warm and fuzzy about it and more asked like who would it most benefit and how could you get them to try it well the, yeah no I, I think you're right it, it, you, you need you need to, to someone like an elon musk or someone who normalizes it for everybody else i think that's exactly right i guess the question the reason i brought that up was because it seems like a lot of uh, policy issues run up against that medium person the 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 voter or the consumer right. or the person who's you know trying to get something passed that reforms this institution or, or that way of doing things you often run up into this implacable people aren't informed or they don't really care or they don't really want to know about it or so that seems like a common thread in the stuff that i think about a lot i'm like well how do you implement this You're like voters good right. luck with them <laughs> yeah so um, i've been thinking more about the following lately it's just that often we decide what to do through talking and then what we recommend is the thing that sounds good in talking to the sort of arguments that come to us when we talk. But then most of the choices in the modern world we make aren't mediated by talking. We just do. We buy, we sell, we choose. And for those things, there can be more of a deviation between what we would say in praise or criticism of it and what we actually choose. We actually often make choices that we wouldn't approve on if we were to give a speech about it. Um, and that's just a fact of our world. And it's one of the ways that markets do well for us. That is, most of the things markets do for us are things we, with words, would disapprove and criticize if we were asked about it. But we aren't asked. We're just given choices and we choose. So, for example, you know, if if we had to discuss whether any one person should be fired from any one job and have a widespread consensus about it, few people would ever get fired. <laughs> but if we put somebody in charge of a restaurant and say, you know, if you can't make enough money, you're going to go out of business and you get to pick your employees and we're just going to decide whether to eat at you whenever we feel like it, then they're put in the position of having to fire people. <laughs> it's not going to keep them in business. And we're... We can just be in denial about that. We don't have to acknowledge any responsibility for that. We just make our private choices. We choose what restaurant we want to go to or not based on the menus offered and the options offered. And we ignore all the rest of the consequences of those actions, even though we would verbally disapprove of those consequences if we were asked about them. And that's in many ways the, the ways in which new market alternatives will displace other things even if we would verbally disapprove of them because we're not in a world where verbal discussions are the main way things happen at least among ordinary people that we when we have discussions it's among a very select set of unusual people and on that optimistic note robin thanks for coming on the show <laughs> thanks for having me <laughs>